برنامه امروز ما به انگلیسی است به همین خاطر پوزش میطلبم از اونهایی که از ایران به ما پیوستن ما این برنامه رو داریم ضبط میکنیم و ظرف دو هفته آینده با زیرنویس فارسی در سایت دانشگاه در اختیارتون قرار خواهیم شد Ladies and gentlemen, uh, my name is Abbasi Milani. Welcome to uh, our conference on dynamic entrepreneurship in the future Iran. Uh, this is part of an ongoing series of conferences we have organized. Uh, the first one was a major conference organized with two groups, uh, the, uh, two other groups other than the Iranian Studies Program, uh, Gozar, a group of uh, top Iranian technocrats, uh, engineers, uh, lawyers, uh, academicians who are thinking about the problem of transition, uh, the group Kai, uh, Iranian uh, entrepreneurs uh, in Silicon Valley, some of the stars of Silicon Valley uh, have come together and are thinking seriously about how to help this process of transition. The event was organized by the three of us, three groups. Uh, it brought together about 100 people from uh, uh, around the world, essentially, uh, and I'm happy to say it caught the attention of the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is always a good sign. <laughs> uh, the, within that conference, we organized uh, three panels. Uh, those three panels are now available on our website. Those were in English and now are available with the uh, subtitle. Uh, one panel was on uh, a joint effort that uh, Iranian studies is beginning with the law school, Stanford Law School, uh, on how to curate reports about human rights uh, and make them, as we say in Persian, mahkam pasand. Uh, Professor Alan Weiner from law school, who is here with us today, uh, uh, and uh, one of his colleagues and the Iranian Studies Program, we had a discussion about the launch of this. There is another panel discussion about transition in a comparative uh, context with Larry Diamond, Mike McFall, and I, and a third panel on what is called in political science a pact of transition. Uh, how parts of the moderate opposition and parts of the moderate desperate regime might come together and try to save the country and avoid a conflict and make a transition possible. So this is, uh, in a sense, uh, the fourth of these uh, series of conversations, and we are going to continue them. Uh, and uh, I honestly believe that um, it is a historic moment, a historic conference. I don't know of any time in the 40 years of Iranian diaspora that such a sterling group of Iranian entrepreneurs have come together, have put their mind and their time and their energy in trying to think about how to uh, uh, save the Iranian economy and create an economy befitting the Iranian society. Uh, the list of uh, uh, the panelists uh, uh, is available online. I'm not going to uh, uh, take more uh, of your time uh, to introduce them. Uh, uh, everyone is here except uh, Ms. Specialist who's joining us uh, through Zoom and Mr. Tej Mr. Tejarati who's also joining us through Zoom. We have prepared a series of questions uh, in consultation with the members of the panel. Uh, these are sort of the ideal type of questions that we think uh, we need to think about if we are going to save uh, the Iranian economy from its uh, current cursed uh, position. And all of our conferences, I must say, I must add, 
at least as far as the Iranian studies program is concerned, uh, is based on an effort to understand how to transition Iran to a secular democracy while preserving the national integrity of the country, preserving Iran as a unit uh, and creating a secular, inclusive, democratic polity. So to begin, uh, we thought uh, of all the questions that we submitted uh, or we uh, collected from these uh, members of the uh, distinguished members of the panel, uh, we begin by asking them, uh, what of all of these questions do you think is the most urgent in trying to understand and uh, uh, fix the problem of the Iranian economy? And we're going to do it alphabetically, and, and members of the panel can uh, each interject. And hopefully from here on out, you, you won't hear my uh, voice, and you'll hear these people talking about things that they know best and have great records of accomplishment. Please, Raja. Uh, thank you. Um, glad to be here. Well, um, you know, when you think about what this regime has done to Iran for the last 43 years, among all the crimes um, <clears throat> that they commit, one of them on the economy side is the fact that it's, it's really an economic system of bribery, economic system of, of who do you know and not really a merit-based uh, type of, of an economy today. You know, there are families that get, um, you know, licenses, exclusive licenses to do this, that, import this, build that, and so on and so forth that are all tied to the regime. Um, the second problem that we have today in that society is that over 70, in some accounts, 80% of the economy is being controlled by IRGC which uh, itself is really what you're thinking about here is, is, well, that's kind of like a government-run type of system. And one of the fundamentals of uh, success of entrepreneurship is that you have a merit-based type society. Um, as those of you who live in Silicon Valley have been involved with entrepreneurship, you know that um, you know, it's a lot of hard work it's taken a lot of risk, aside from everything else, to go build a company, to create jobs. And what you would want to know at the end of the day is that, you know, that's the right way to do it and that's the best way to get uh, to your own success and also creating jobs for, for the society you live in. So um, I believe that fundamental right off the bat is, is you have to kind of move from the society that, uh, the economic society that they've created in Iran today to one that's merit-based society. Uh, it starts with that because then that gives people incentive to go, uh, to go do the hard work and create jobs. But when you look beyond that, um, you know, what we're looking at in the next few decades, um, you can be successful if you're building a knowledge-based type economy, right? It is going to be knowledge-based economy. One just has to look at sort of like where we live and see how rapid this transition is happening. And a lot of jobs that uh, people think today may not exist 20, 30 years from now. So you have to build for the knowledge-based economy. And what are the fundamentals of a knowledge-based economy? Is you have to have a good ecosystem of good universities, a good education system, good K through 12. I can tell you with first-hand knowledge that that is very much lacking in Iran. 
Um, we are proud of our university graduates that come here and succeed in the most uh, competitive environment. But there's a country of 85 million people whose K through 12 education is very much lacking. Uh, 60, 70 students get packed into a school and the teacher walks in with flip-flop because he can't um, afford to buy shoes. That's not how you build a knowledge-based economy. So we need to kind of get to fundamentals. We need to make sure that the education, K through 12, and then, of course, universities, are available to everybody all over the country. It's a large country, and it's made up of a lot of different um, you know, um, cultures um, within our country. So, so we need to get everybody involved, and that starts by making sure that the kids get great education, moving up to the, to the university system, and then at the university system, we get beyond the top, the top four or five and make sure there's some uniformity in, in how then they graduate from high school and gra graduate from, from university, learning how to run businesses, learning how to develop technology and how to build companies and so on. So. Um, again, uh, merit-based, knowledge-based economy, so you got to build to that. And then, of course, the other things that are required, is, as we all know, is capital formation uh, is, is a key. So you need to have, you know, economic and fiscal incentives for companies and entrepreneurs and investors to come together to fund those types of activities that will lead to creation of jobs. Um, so, a uh, lot more we can talk about, but I, I pass it on to others to comment as well. Right. So, I should... Please, uh, please. Uh, first of all, uh, my uh, gratitude uh, to you, Professor Milani, for bringing us here. Uh, you've done an amazing job. Uh, it's after 43 years, really, was when I went to the conference in Stanford, it was the first time after 43 years that I was hopeful that our community is coming together and uh, in a democratic platform uh, that we can speak and share uh, our views. Uh, I, I totally agree uh, with, uh, with Farajan on uh, the importance of first, uh, obviously, regime change uh, in Iran and uh, uh, getting rid of this mafia-style uh, uh, government uh, uh, in our country. In the last 43 years, uh, they have uh, destroyed the entire infrastructure of the com uh, country. There are certain things that are absolutely disastrously crucial to, uh, to address, which is uh, management of water resources, for instance. Uh, but when we look at uh, the historical context of where we are, obviously, uh, uh, we love Iran, but we are part of a global world uh, these days. And there are changes that are happening that are going to transform uh, uh, every country in the world, including uh, United States. And uh, although I see this uh, as a challenge uh, for us to fix 43 years of uh, uh, bad management of the country, it also, we should look at it in a glass half full as an opportunity to build it right. You know, we uh, can use experiences from other countries uh, that have gone uh, uh, through these transitions and also the uh, trial and error that has been done on technology, for instance, in the U.S. 
and democratic countries from th that learning and make sure uh, that doesn't uh, happen. I'm very, very hopeful uh, that given uh, the educated young people in Iran, uh, there's a majority of the population is now uh, below 30 years old. Uh, uh, they have uh, a decent uh, uh, level of education uh, and uh, eagerness uh, for change. We see it uh, from their uh, amazing slogan of uh, woman life freedom uh, that has become a global uh, 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 slogan and has been uh, uh, igniting uh, similar movements all across the world. Uh, we can use uh, this young generation that has modern values, uh, uh, enable them to be able to participate uh, in the economy, as Farajan said, in, on a merit-based basis, uh, uh, so that they have access uh, uh, to capital, they have access to resources uh, to rebuild uh, our country. Obviously, uh, the monetary policy, uh, uh, the overhaul, uh, of the financial and banking system in Iran. And again, uh, there are opportunities there to do, to do this right with the latest technologies uh, uh, that uh, thankfully we have many uh, tech entrepreneurs both outside of uh, Iran uh, and uh, inside the country for people to start thinking, uh, uh, what is it? What are the principles uh, that uh, we all agree on uh, and have uh, both long-term and short-term plans uh, to uh, uh, overhaul, uh, overhaul these. So uh, that's, uh, uh, let's pass it on to <laughs> Faye for. Yes, uh, so th thanks, Dr. Milani. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite and all the colleagues and friends on the panel and everybody who's tuning in and is here. Uh, I also like to start with acknowledging the Iranian people in Iran who are leading a revolution that is not only impacting Iran, but inspiring us globally, whether we are in an Iranian descent or others. You know, what they are doing uh, is, uh, uh, is quite impressive uh, that, in a sense, they're taking a global view into this revolution, or the revolution has a global impact. Yes, they're fighting the dictatorship in Iran, and that's the first most important thing to bring down this dictator government who have stripped the right of people for the past 43 years, regardless of gender, you know, um, uh, race, um, uh, which, which, which region they're from, it's blanket, basically, IRGC government versus others. Um, and that's very inspirational. And what they're fighting for, in a sense, is the fight uh, for the right to be, the right to exist, the right for equality, uh, the right to have a participation in economy. Uh, and, and we see some element of kind of entrepreneurial toward their resistance. Uh, they close a cafe in Amol because people did not wear the right hijab. The next day, everybody gathered in front of that coffee, coffee shop and they start dancing and playing music. That, to some degree, has the element of entrepreneurial to their resistance. Because entrepreneurial, at the end of the day, being an entrepreneur at the end of the day, 
means uh, not accept accepting the status quo and uh, and finding a solution to the problem uh, in a very innovative way. Uh, and, and, and these are the key elements that we can see right now what's happening in Iran and how they're leading the revolution. Uh, and yes, hard work is required to bring down the government. You have to take risk uh, in your resistance and approach uh, with, with the fight that you're doing. Uh, and, and, and at the end of the day, uh, post-government, what we need is an uh, integrated approach uh, between the schools, universities, entrepreneurs, people, and uh, basically uh, corporate, government funding, and uh, private funding. There is a need for bringing these together in order to create a society that to some degree doesn't have the challenges that even we are facing in developed countries. Uh, because at the end of the day, what we're facing on one side, Iran is going through the revolution. On the other side, the world is going toward through a technology revolution. Everything is changing fundamentally from the technology point of view at the same time. So it is a best time to take the, the, the advantage of the situation and take this as an opportunity and build solutions, bring the digital infrastructures, address the physical infrastructure issues, bring the new digital infrastructures, create jobs, enable people to create companies, and not only build solutions that, are, that has impact to their lives, but also be the solutions that can be sold and exported to other countries and become the fundamental layers of platform that other countries can use. So uh, th these are all kind of, all stars are lining up and there's a massive opportunity uh, uh, to, to take from here uh, and build, build the country the same way that uh, after World War II, Japan and Germany basically led the manufacturing, led the, uh, led the automation, and became the lead in that sector. The same way Iran right now has the opportunity to not only create the economy from uh, uh, natural resources to build the physical infrastructure, but also the lead in the next generation of digital solutions as well as a merit-based participation into digital economy, which is going to be very different than what we are experiencing, the digital economy that we're experiencing today in even developed countries. Great. Thank you, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think it might be helpful to start with some facts. Uh, the Iranian economy in 1978 um, uh, between 1960 and 1978, grew by three and a half times. Um, and from 1978 to today, it's dropped, it's shrunk by a third on a per capita basis. So if you just start with that fundamental premise and compare it to either com uh, countries in the region, Turkey comes to mind, uh, or other countries that were in a similar stage of development, like Singapore, I think the track record speaks for itself. So let's start with that. Um, but starting with that, I'd like to go to the end. I'm very optimistic about what can be done in Iran. And the reason I'm optimistic is that we have a very entrepreneurial society. 
I mean, just look at what people are doing over there, what people are doing over here and all around the world. Number two, half the population, women, in Iran are really, really fantastic compared to almost any other society I'm aware of. And, and so we have 100% of the population that can help with the solution, not only half, which is unique in that region. We have a combination of, uh, of large population and natural resources that are very much in demand. And I don't mean necessarily hydrocarbons. I mean rare elements and all kinds of other things that are going to be the backbone of the modern industry. So, um, and let's face it, we're starting from a very low level. I mean, it's a low bar. It's not hard to fix some very basic things that can unleash uh, this talent that exists um, in our country. Um, and there are models out there. We don't need to invent the wheel by ourselves. There are lots of models out there that we can take elements that are appropriate with Iran and uh, for Iran and implement. So, but at the end of the day, before we can start on, on any entrepreneurial activity, which I completely agree with, there needs to be an environment, there needs to be a governance system that allows that kind of entrepreneurship to prosper. And I think that governance starts with trust. You cannot have a vibrant economy without trust. So what goes into creating trust? Rule of law. We need laws, we need a judicial system that we can trust so that you know your property rights are protected and somebody with a lot of muscle can come and take away the fruits of your labor. We need to eliminate uh, corruption and this is gonna become a very, very important issue as we privatize big sectors of the economy. Faraj talked about about 75-80% of the economy being in, uh, under the control of the various boniards. Um, look, we got to get that out of uh, government control and back into entrepreneurial hands. By the way, most of that 75-80% uh, was created prior to 1978 by a lot of entrepreneurial families that have been forced to basically pick up and start all over again here and have done really, really well. So, um, so I think we need to create that condition of trust uh, by eliminating corruption, protecting investments, and, and um, building some trade relationships uh, with other countries that can be helpful to us. We also need to create a system of transparency so that it's very clear, the, the metrics are very clear in terms of what role government is uh, playing with respect to creating this, um, this uh, infrastructure. Capital formation is a vital issue. And uh, the good news is that Iran starts with no, virtually no foreign debt. All, all our debt is internal. So we need to recreate the banking system. Uh, which needs to be um, not based on cronism and who you know, just like you said, and based on fundamentals of sound banking. I'm sure my friend Afsane is going to have a lot to, uh, to say about that. But, but there's huge upside. We, we got to allow people to be able to make money initially. Uh, uh, I mean, hopefully all the time, but initially you need some examples of people that are really successful in our country so we can attract domestic capital, we can attract foreign capital, and we can uh, attract capital from the diaspora that are very ready to roll up their sleeves and help the people of Iran. But fundamentally, 
this problem is going to get fixed by the people of Iran. None of us sitting over exactly. here, but it's going to get fixed by the people of Iran. But and, and we can talk about a lot of the constraints, and I'm sure the panel will turn to that, and, and I have some ideas on that. But but I'm at the end of the day, I go to where I started. Um, I am very optimistic because we can leapfrog a lot of the technologies and a lot of steps that have been taken in the last 40, 45 years by other countries and avoid those steps and go to really what the modern technology um, uh, allows us to do with respect to communication systems, with respect to systems of finance and capital formation, and systems of governance. So uh, at the end of the day, I, I want to leave you with, uh, with this very optimistic message. Honored to be part of this incredible panel. And I think a lot of the really important points have already been made. Um, sort of staying focused on what Hamid just uh, uh, reminded, of, reminded us of is one, with all the problems that are going on in Iran, we have to remember the size of the population, the size of the economy because of the um, oil economy that it's based on is still quite significant. So from a, you know, we can look at it in different ways and different ways of ranking Iran's economy but it's approximately a two trillion uh, economy. If you sort of look at certain numbers, we can debate that obviously, but uh, if you compare, for example, Turkey is like a one trillion economy, just to put it in context. Um, Iran also sits on whether we agree with the numbers or not, close to 10% of world uh, oil reserves, 15% of uh, natural gas reserves. And then, of course, access to solar, et cetera. Everyone has commented on uh, water. Uh, World Resources Institute and Stanford have done a lot of studies. Um, Stanford Iranian Studies Program have looked at the water issue in Iran. So if we look at the positives and negatives on Iran's economic balance sheet, you have the oil and gas, you have solar on the positive, you also have the human capital that uh, that Hamid uh, referred to and a number of other speakers referred to. And within that human resources, we have half of the population, which is women. And I think we cannot forget the fact that um, despite all these difficulties, and we're all watching uh, with great apprehension what's going on in the schools in Iran right now as uh, Iranian women are getting somehow poisoned or gassed or hurt. Uh, but if we look at the history of Iranian education over the last uh, 100 years and then even during uh, since the revolution, Iranian women have been allowed and able to you know, 63% of doctors uh, getting educated are, are women. Large number of STEM engineers are women. Even today, we would assume that uh, close to uh, Iran might be the fifth largest producer of women STEM uh, experts. So the fact that what is going on in Iranian schools, if it's not stopped immediately, could have a huge impact on this uh, on the wealth of Iran, on the potential for growth and and social and economic growth of Iran. So I think that is a very, very important fact as we're speaking on this panel today to, um, to think about. Um, in terms of, uh, again, on the positive side of the balance sheet, um, you also have an incredible entrepreneurial class. You see a lot of people uh, on this panel who are 
Iranian entrepreneurs. You have a lot of people um, in um, in uh, sort of G7 countries, some of the most important people running companies um, in um, a Fortune 100 companies uh, of Iranian origin. And so when you see that, you realize that there is huge potential there. Um, and when I've worked uh, 20 years in economic development, looking across the globe on different economies, and when you look at the potential of our economy in Iran versus a lot of emerging markets, you just see the that potential being enormous at the same time, again, not to Hamid um, uh, referred to what you said, I, I was going to mention, for example, the fact that Iran doesn't have foreign debt is huge. A lot of emerging markets, as we speak, are going through debt restructuring and having major problems. So that's like a big positive again on the balance sheet. So how do we, with all the negatives that are going on, that are slowing down from corruption to uh, a government-run um, economy, and we know when uh, governments run economies, we're just seeing it in China. You went from uh, Chinese trying to sort of use the private sector, having double-digit growth, um, creation of the tech industry in China, how that worked. And then the last few years, as the role of government has again been super important in taking over the economy and impacting the sector, the tech sector, how it has slowed down economic growth, how it has also uh, got a lot of the Chinese uh, entrepreneurs to leave or not be as productive as they were before. So Iran is no different than any other country. And, and given all the negatives on its uh, economic balance sheet, we are in a situation that makes me very sad because when I look at Iran versus um, a lot of other countries, um, not just Singapore, but a lot of emerging markets with its potential, its growth rate is so much lower. Its inflation is so much higher. Its rate of unemployment is so much higher. The banking sector, it used to be that the Central Bank of Iran, um, you know, 20 years ago, plus 30 years ago, uh, before the revolution, it was one of the top central banks. Central bank governors in Iran would be in international conferences talking about how central banks should be run. Even people who were in the central bank from the previous uh, days, because they had done, gone to some of the best schools um, and uh, and got the best grades at, uh, at uh, British and American and French and other universities, they would go back to Iran. And I remember working at the World Bank with some of these central bankers. Amazing. Today, they have fewer and fewer resources and it's becoming a political process. So an organization which for even the first few years of the revolution was run as a technical institution is no longer a technical institution. So that's a big negative on the balance sheet of Iran. So if you have a central bank that is not running well, if you have a banking system where the seven largest banks are basically public sector banks, where you have had also problems of corruption in some of the banking sector, um, it's very difficult to use that banking sector for the growth of the economy, and we can go into greater depth uh, in that. Iran has, um, as you know, does not have access to the SWIFT system, which allows transfer of assets and money, uh, transfer of money between countries. So last year, it went into the Russian uh, equivalent of SWIFT system. So now it is getting in connected into the Russian banks, uh, which themselves have great difficulty, and a system of 100 so-called banks uh, from Eurasia that are in that system, again, you know, 
Uh, you don't see many Iranians trying to uh, uh, keep their assets in, uh, or anybody really in the emerging world trying to keep, whether they're in Brazil or Mexico or China or anywhere else, holding their uh, assets, foreign assets in uh, Russian rubles or in Chinese currency. They all want uh, US dollars or European or Japanese currency. So this structure that has been created uh, using the Russian uh, equivalent of the SWIFT system is not working too well. Obviously, there's efforts going between Russia and China and others to maybe make that a little bit more global. But I don't have too much um, too much uh, faith, uh, faith that that will work. So Iran is essentially cut out of the formal financial system. And on the deficit side of the balance sheet of the economy, I think that's a huge thing. I also don't want to underestimate on the positive side, we have all these energy resources. On the negative side, as you've all said, the way we have destroyed Iran's environment from water resources. If you look at WRI um, maps, as I said earlier, among the worst in the world, it is complete red. Um, that is a huge asset. You can live without oil, you can live without water. Um, and so looking at the way the environment has been really impacted is something that will take a lot of investment and a lot of um, economic resources needing to go back to rebuild that. So we should not underestimate how, uh, if you again look at World Bank uh, or IMF reports, the social indicators in Iran from health to education to energy to environment have been um, negatively impacted as we speak today. Mr. Tijarati. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be with you um, here. Uh, I want to avoid repeating a lot of the points that uh, our friends have uh, uh, already mentioned. Uh, I wanted to um, say that uh, one of the things that uh, we did during the time of the JCPOA uh, was that as, as an American company, when the opportunity opened up, um, uh, because of the, um, the critical areas in which our company um, had uh, specific technologies such as oil and gas and petrochemicals and aerospace and uh, air pollution, etc. Um, we felt that it was important for us to participate and not allow that gap to be filled, say, by Chinese and other uh, more European or other Asian um, companies. And as a result, we ended up uh, being the largest American company operating in Iran for uh, that brief period of 18 months or so. Um, we had about 35 people working full-time from outside and another 40 people that we hired in Iran. So a lot of my um, experiences, um, uh, even though I myself never went there uh, for, uh, for uh, other reasons, but a lot of my experiences are reflective of the, the, those, uh, those years. Uh, one of the things in support of what um, uh, many have said here um, even though uh, it, it said that maybe 50, 60% of the economy is in the hands of the state. Actually, during that period, we found that, that uh, because for a long time, Iran had had uh, a lack of investment in critical infrastructure, uh, those critical infrastructure, in, in fact, were so skewed in the hands of the states that we did a very detailed analysis 
and over 86% of all of the investments that we ended up working with, remember we were the largest American company maybe by a factor of three or four. We were um, on the reported basis, we were over 85% of the American companies' uh, revenues in Iran. 86% of all of those things went into a handful of companies uh, that uh, most of you um, know, and those handful of companies are largely related to a central part of the regime. So uh, I think a, a very big set of policies around creating that, um, uh, that environment of trust that Hamid mentioned is exceedingly important. Um, the uh, policies regarding treatment of foreign companies, protection of uh, uh, national assets, but also protecting the SMEs. In fact, we did a post study and maybe Afsan Hanum would have uh, done similar things that actually net net uh, compared to before and after JCPOA, the general population was actually net net poorer um, because uh, inflation took on because of all the investments and all that and the economy itself went up, but it only benefited a, a, a very, very small uh, portion of the population. So if we don't want to have a runaway uh, situation, we really have to address this balance um, of it. Um, bureaucracy and red tape are obvious, uh, obvious things. Land use, uh, from my experience, in other places, um, extremely important, extremely bureaucratic, very, very corrupt uh, policies uh, for specific industries um, uh, that um, um, otherwise it will it will uh, end up. Uh, you know, creating copycats in each of these industries from uh, uh, for us and uh, really have no results uh, that are long lasting. Um, a lot of people talked about energy, um, even though um, Iran had very good global access to um, to technology before 1978. But you can imagine about 40 years of um, investment or wrong investment in uh, oil, gas, um, uh, petrochemicals, uh, and others. And we saw the, the tremendous amount of thirst to put the right technologies. One of the things we found was that technologies that we ourselves had installed in the 50s and 60s was being meticulously maintained in Iran uh, in, a, in a very, very um, creative way by, uh, by the engineers. A um, couple of other things that I wanted to, to mention um, is uh, that um, because of the uh, lack of trust, because of uh, the tremendous amount of culture of fear that is in the country, we found that we had to uh, inject a lot of training in basic efficiency and effectiveness of the workforce. There was essentially uh, no ethics of teamwork um, and uh, sharing of information and data and uh, and coming together. But uh, the talent base is such that in a very short period of time, um, our Iranian uh, population became actually the marvel of the of the company. Uh, they really won over the people. One of the key factors uh, that everybody mentioned were women, majority of our workers are women. But another factor that um, that comes to mind is that if you look at most of the Gulf states, 
that now have uh, surpassed, of course, in terms of GDP per capita and the development, most of them rely on expat workforce. And that is, over the long term, uh, really not sustainable. Iran is one of the few countries there that not only has, uh, does not rely on expat workforce, but has a very, very well-trained and educated workforce, uh, not even comparable to uh, even Egypt that has a, a local population in terms of education. So I think uh, back to uh, some of the more um, optimistic comments that were made. Uh, if that little experience of mine was indicative of what can happen, um, I think I'm, I'm extremely positive that if we address those fundamentals, uh, that Iran uh, will uh, will have a very very bright future. Now, myself, like most of you out there, are awaiting the day that we can all roll up our sleeves and go out there. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, one uh, point of fact for those of you who might not have access to this BIOS, the company that Mr. Tejarati was referring to is Honeywell, and he was in charge of uh, Asian operations for Honeywell. Uh, and uh, uh, also a, a brief administrative note before we return to the panelists. Uh, the way we are going to handle the question and answer is uh, at the end of our discussion, is that you can submit uh, your question or vote for other questions, bringing them up in the platform that is called Slido. You can sign on to this. Uh, the directions are very easy uh, to follow. And once we get to those, I will be reading the question that has been voted as the most relevant, important question to ask. So please submit your question. So now let's start the same process of people commenting on what has been said, adding to points that uh, uh, you want to focus on. Particularly, I think, well, I am very interested to hear uh, uh, the question of infrastructure, the question of technology, uh, the question of uh, e-governance, uh, uh, e-commerce, all of these. So beginning with Araja. Sure. Um, I, I mean, you know, where do you begin? Um, the the digital infrastructure um, itself is is could be a um, impediment to any economic development, right? You, you've seen this all over the world. Countries that are well connected and um, you know the population grows grows with with their knowledge base of what's going on in the world gets more in tune with uh, with what needs to get done for themselves to get ahead. Um, but just like water security, food security, um, information and data security also has to be part of the parcel, right? Uh, we well know that, um, you know, Iran's internet, uh, although prevalent, it's very slow um, and it gets turned on and off as they please, um, depending on where they feel that there is... Um, uh, there, there is a security issue for the regime. Um, so access to, uh, to internet um, flowing well and, uh, and being secure and outside the um, constant monitoring of, of the regime, it's really important for people to carry on with their lives and, and start to exchange ideas and start to uh, talk openly. Um, the infrastructure um, dollars that have been spent in Iran, um, which they are spending, uh, most of them are spending being spent around control. 
control of the uh, of the movement of people, control of of the thoughts of people, control of the communication of people. I just recently spoke with someone that um, had gone from here to Iran to run an operation for their family, and um, and he very clearly said that in the company of the size that they had, they knew that every email, every file, every notion of anything else that they did in that company, a copy of it would be viewed and reviewed by, um, by the security forces. And so, so essentially, you know, that kind of reduces your, your productivity at work to even exchange ideas, uh, you know, related, related to work. So, you know, this shift in investing in infrastructure, in data infrastructure, is really, really critical. But what's also critical, and, and I've said this before as well, is that I think that the, you know, like in the society that we live here, everybody talks about the First Amendment and Second Amendment in America. If we're looking at the future of Iran or future of any country on the planet, really the right to your information, the right to data, has got to be on top of the list. As I mentioned earlier, this is going to be the world of the future is a knowledge economy, is a knowledge world, right? And if you don't have access to that data, you're not going to go too far. You need to be in, have the right to access the data, right to, to internet, to connectivity, and then a privacy of that data. To me, that's, that's very fundamental in how you build a society for the next generation of youth in Iran to build you know, a good life for themselves and for their children, for the future generations. The, um, the other two items I wanted to kind of double click on again is one that Hamid brought up, is that you know, half of the Iran population is, is, uh, is our woman. They are highly educated. I think it's 60% of, of um, university are women. We need to integrate them back into this, uh, into this, and then whatever they need to make sure that they succeed. It's not enough to educate them and then not give them jobs. That's not how the world works. You can't say, oh, well, I graduated 60% in, in science, and then they come home, and then there's nothing for them to do, and you don't provide opportunities for them. So creating that opportunity is all about small companies building entrepreneurial products, services, so that um, so that these um, this population can can get in, and that requires a, a total infrastructure that's data, data privacy, data security, job security, labor laws, uh, anti-discrimination rules, and and a whole bunch of things that go into that. So uh, getting, getting uh, perhaps to uh, some of the concrete uh, on uh, policies uh, in the future, when we talked about, for instance, uh, water resource management, right? Uh, as uh, you may know, one of the things that the Islamic Republic did after uh, the revolution was to privatize water. And now we're in a, a very disastrous situation where uh, the underground water resources have depleted, and I don't, don't exactly remember the numbers, but to, for instance, 300 centimeters, 400, and three or four meters. And uh, usually it's a disaster if it's above 20, 30 centimeters. So we have order of magnitudes uh, uh, due to that policy alone. 
So there's certain things that can happen right off the bat, and that's, uh, again, nationalization of water resources uh, to impede uh, further abuse uh, uh, of this uh, very precious uh, water resource. Uh, and uh, that, from an operational perspective, uh, is very complex because now it's been 40 years of that, uh, maybe not 40 years, maybe 30-some years, because it took time for them to change those policies. But the uh, processes that used to exist to control that no longer exist. But with, with technology, uh, we can address that. And we should start thinking about that, building uh, the digital infrastructure uh, to manage properly uh, water resources uh, of the country. Uh, the other uh, aspect is the communication infrastructure that uh, Farajan uh, talked about. Uh, that, that's an area, because of the uh, tech-savvy population of Iran, I think merits significant investment in building fiber infrastructure uh, across the country and then leasing it to private companies. I think that's absolutely uh, essential uh, uh, for the for the future of Iran, kind of like what Australia did uh, uh, on that front. And from a software perspective, uh, I, I think I've, I've always been uh, impressed uh, with what Estonia did uh, in terms of uh, building first some principles uh, on, on a digital economy and how it, it would operate. For instance, they came up with concepts of data sovereignty and the fact that people are owners of their own data, right? They created a single digital identity where you wanted to get, for instance, uh, any government services. They, I, don't, I forget what the name of their policy was, the one-time policy or something like that, that you never share uh, the information with the government more than once. And uh, that, that, that information, if other agencies in the government require it, they should get it through a network that they had built uh, with checks and balances and security to ensure both privacy of citizens. Uh, and, and we can, of course, this is in the government services domain, but today they did that in the early uh, 90s and mid 90s, uh, uh, for what I remember. Uh, today, we can go much farther than that and uh, extend uh, that to the private domain and make sure that uh, people's data not only is protected, but because it has monetary value, it can be monetized uh, 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 by them. Uh, so going far beyond uh, uh, what uh, even developed countries can do, and it's because we don't have that uh, legacy. That's, that's, that's really important that we take advantage uh, uh, of the fact that we can work with a clean slate and do it right. Here in developed countries, it's hard because it has impact on the next quarter results of companies to do disruptive things, for instance. Uh, but we have that ability uh, to be able to do things uh, 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 right uh, uh, from scratch. And uh, then the, all the government services, uh, we can uh, follow the um, Estonian model. And in terms of attraction of capital, again, there are models uh, with uh, 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 Israel with a small population. Look at how they've managed to they put a lot into uh, their R&D. I think 5 to 10% of the GDP uh, is spent into R&D and creating a healthy 
startup community and attracting uh, foreign capital. Uh, we have an advantage over Israel because we have 85 million people. They are dependent on, 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 on foreign markets. We have a large enough market in Iran. And of course, uh, with uh, uh, the overthrow or the regime change, there'd be peace and prosperity in the Middle East because uh, you know, that's the source uh, of all the problems in the Middle East uh, is the Islamic Republic. Peace and prosperity will come back. There will be uh, no Hezbollah and Hamas uh, and, and uh, you know, extremists uh, and uh, those countries become open markets in both, both in terms of talent that we can leverage and help and create a, a, a uh, very prosperous, uh, prosperous region. Uh, before I uh, you speak, I just want to add a small note. Uh, we've had a project at Stanford, uh, Iranian studies, called the Iran Vision 2040, that has studied aspects of the Iranian economy, including the water system. It's a remarkable set of articles that they wrote. These articles are accessible on our website. They have also been compiled into a book uh, rewritten and re-edited. Uh, one of the authors of the book, uh, Matin, is here with us. I, I want to confirm uh, and uh, 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 welcome him. So uh, these articles are there. And the water situation is truly biblical, what this regime has done in the destruction of the water system. And these scholars have worked very carefully trying to figure it out and figure out the problem of food security in the future of Iran. The Iranian regime keeps talking about feeding 300, 400 million people. They can't even feed the 85 million that they have now. I apologize. No, no, <laughs> it's the important notes because, and I want to go back to some of the facts that were stated from the economic point of view and the GDP of Iran in past. One thing that put it in context for me was my trip to Korea a while ago and I saw Tehran Street, which is the heart of Seoul, and it's the Silicon Valley of Korea. And Tehran Street, it's the, it's the memory or, re or reminder of 1976, the deal that Iran closed with, uh, with Korea to help them build their economy, give them oil at a cheaper price, and then allowing Korea to build their economy. That was 1976. And look at where Korea is today and where Iran is today. But that also gives you hope, because it shows that you can build the country and you can move forward with the right policy, with the right intention, with the right system in place. Uh, and, and speaking of trust, I think one thing that we have to be very, very careful about, and I think Iranian people in Iran uh, know the uh, propaganda machinery of the Iranian government and they don't fall in those traps, but maybe in the diaspora community, we have to be careful with how Iranian government is trying to create divide to rule and they're trying to create distractions on topics that are irrelevant at this time by, by and therefore direct the, the, the attention of people from the revolution and enabling people in Iran to fighting over 
the, the type of government, the future of Iran and all that. So we have to be careful about that uh, and, and be, be clever about it and not to fall in trap for those disinformation. And that goes back to the trust. And the other thing around the size of the population that we all touched on is also important to note that it's very diverse as well. We have a diverse population in Iran, and despite everything, all the rumors that there is a discussion around dividing Iran, no, they are very united. And we see that, again, it's going back to disinformation, how Iranian government is trying to divide the people by race, but Iranian are coming on the streets and chanting that from Tehran to Zahedat, you know, they, they just enforcing that unity how Iranian government is trying to pull Iranian women out of the equation, but they are leading the revolution and they are becoming the hero outside Iran. In the region, their revolution actually uh, enabled Afghanis, Afghani women to come out and do the same, Syrian women to come out and do the same. And we all know that Iran is basically the cancer of the region and their impact and the negative impact is not limited even to the region, is, is basically expanded globally. But going back and, and, and the opportunity, and again, the optimism and opportunity is to look at what worked outside and what didn't. What are the changes that we need to make? Let's start with policies and principles. Let's actually work together, and even with Iranian people are inside Iran, in building those principles, in writing down those principles, in communicating and creating the blueprint architecture of the future of Iran. Whether it's about economy, it's about business model, it's about the way that the system could operate, you know. Those are the things that we can do. And, and, and then going back to the digital world, again, this is something that is absolutely in turmoil outside Iran as well. And that's the opportunity. I mean, uh, chat GPT, and I'm not focused on chat GPT, but the outcome and the attention that it got recently, the AI model, uh, the AI chat GPT around AI, it illustrated how the digital world can change very dynamically and rapidly. It's no longer about mobile application, but about systems communicating in a more uh, automated way. So when we look at the future of Iran, it's not about let's replicate, let's copy what is available today outside Iran and in developed country and put it in Iran. It's not about let's, uh, you know, it's about what is the future behold and let's create them in Iran. That's the entrepreneurship. So how can we create the next communication, physical communication, network communication of the future in Iran that is, uh, that is less costly, more energy efficient, more heterogeneous, and it can bring access and connectivity to everywhere, not just dense cities. It can bring communication to also rural areas. What is the next layer of infrastructure of the cloud? It's not about let's rebuild the data centers of Amazon and replicate it there. No, it's about how can we make the cloud more ex expandable and kind of cheaper, more energy efficient, and and uh, uh, and more scalable. It's not about let's build the mobile application of social media or Facebook equivalent of it, of it in Iran, but it's about let's create the social media that is more truth-based 
It doesn't have the challenges of creating a cyber account and uh, uh, flooding the world with this information. But what would be the type of uh, equivalent of it that is more fact-based and fact-driven? How can we bring government contracts into transparent level? How can we create a transparency that every action and transaction is visible to the, to the rest of the community while you're maintaining the data privacy of users? How can we create an economy around data for the data producers? Something that, again, is, is a hot topic right now here, that the corporate are taking the data of the users in order to decide on the future of the corporate and to disintermediate the user. If an Uber driver is basically sharing its data to Uber to create autonomous uh, driverless car, what happened to the driver? So now there is an opportunity on creating an economy in Iran that creates that ride share, by, but with, with the element that the data belongs to the data producer or the data that goes to the, to the corporate actually enables a, enables the, the driver to be a shareholder of that company because they participate in the economy and the growth of the corporate. How can we bring, so these are, when we talk about banking system, how can we take the traditional bank with the future work and combine it to create the new banking system? So these are the things that I think when we look at it, and, and again, when we talk about the blueprint architecture, or at least I refer to it as a blueprint architecture of the country, is actually first, let's write them down. Let's create them. Let's create the policies. Let's define them. Let's define the principles. And, and, and those are some of the, uh, 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 some of the contributions that we can have from outside Iran to enable them, but at the end of the day, the decision is obviously theirs. They are they are responsible, and they are they are basically um, uh, the drivers of their own fate and future. Well, you make a lot of interesting points, and I wanted to build on three of them. Um, tell you a little story. I was talking to a UPS executive about ten years ago. And uh, it was a gentleman who had been pretty senior in the company um, and remembered the old days in Iran. And he told me, told me a funny story. He told me that in 1978, UPS was trying to go global for the first time. And they were looking at the highest potential economies in the world. And there were three countries that they narrowed it down to, Singapore, South Korea, and Iran. And among the three, they selected Iran to go into because they saw the most opportunity in Iran at that time. And it's ironic uh, that we're sitting here talking about those companies, uh, those countries as models. The second thing I wanted to build out on what you said is this importance uh, of unity. There's all kinds of narratives out there that all of us are probably agents of the CIA or <laughs> want to do something nefarious or whatever. I mean, these people are geniuses in yep. creating divisions within our community. We're none of that. And all we want is to see uh, the country that we're all from do better and the people of Iran to do better. And uh, finally, the points that you made um, about leapfrogging technology is, is a really important one because we don't need to replicate all the capital-intensive things that have been done in the last 30, 40 exactly. years. We can jump all over them. But let me raise two of my own issues, which I think are, are pretty important. One is, why now 
and why is the timing so important? The timing is so important for fixing this because we have a de demographic window of opportunity. Um, the population growth rate of Iran went into the mid 3% range, highest in the world, um, uh, in the period between the late 70s and the late 80s. Those people are not 35 or uh, to 50 years old, and there's a lot of them. And they're in the most highly productive stage of their life and their careers. If we don't fix this now, in 10, 20 years, this big bubble will need a lot of healthcare, will need a lot of retirement benefits, and the population growth rate behind it is very slow. It's in the low 1% range. So you won't have enough workers supporting all the health care of the, of the population that is now aging out, um, but is very productive today. So that's one reason for the urgency of what we're talking about. The second reason for the urgency is that these people are about to make a bunch of deals with Russians and Chinese and all that on very suboptimal infrastructure investments. And the problem with that is that it takes away one of the big advantages that we have now that we all talked about, which is that Iran has no foreign debt. If you invest in a lot of expensive infrastructure uh, based on loans provided for you by these countries that are only looking out for themselves, we're going to take away that advantage. Yeah. And if these investments were going into the most productive activities, that'd be fine. But I guarantee you, they're not going to go into the most productive activities. They're going to go into the most profitable um, activities um, for the agents that are that are in between that capital and and the project. So, uh, so those are two reasons for for why this needs to happen uh, pretty quickly. On the topic of infrastructure, let's not forget there are three types of infrastructure. The first is that the one that the rest of the panel knows much more about them than I do, which is the digital infrastructure. And there, the issues of IP protection and all that are really, really important. Uh, so let me, let me leave that one and turn into physical infrastructure, which is, uh, which is something that I know of. And the physical uh, infrastructure is 40, 50 years old. And there is no way you can engage in the global economy without having ports, without having airports, without having road systems, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really important that those investments be prioritized so that they can pay back pretty quickly and we, we don't become an indebted nation. And finally, there is, there's the infrastructure that nobody talks about, uh, particularly in Iran, which is the managerial infrastructure. Um, we, we tend to all be uh, into the um, STEM and science and engineering part of it. But there's a whole managerial ex uh, aspect that is critical to an entrepreneurial society. And Iran was actually doing pretty well on this. I mean, ICMS, uh, the business school that was formed in the 70s in Iran, uh, in affiliation with Harvard Business School, was training all kinds of great managerial talent that were running all these entrepreneurial companies in Iran in the 70s. We shut it down and turned it into a religious uh, university. It's crazy. We got to develop a managerial class in Iran that's committed, that's incentivized, and can really lead all these other efforts into some productive outcomes. So with that, I'll turn it over to Afsane.
Thank you, Hamita. Um, I think a lot of the points have been made and in terms of sort of, uh, and I'm glad that Dr. Milani also highlighted the book um, that uh, 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 Martin Mir, uh, Mirazani and, uh, and Puyazadi and others have done on the economy run um, since 1979. I think uh, for those of you who have not read it, it's a really incredible book. And uh, the fact that, um, you know, 1.5 trillion was collected between 79 and 2020 in oil income. And the fact that there's so little to show for that, I think is a really sad fact, apart from all the other things that have been mentioned already. And the fact that close to 40 to 50% of the labor force is underemployed or unemployed. That's huge compared to most countries. But just in terms of data, again, we talked about poverty. More than half of Iran's population is living under international poverty lines. Iran is um, in the World Bank ranking, I think, 127th country in terms of ease of doing business. I think Mongolia even is above Iran. And um, maybe there are very few countries below Iran. So it's today that difficult to do business with Iran. Um, in terms of talent, we have uh, talked about a number of things, uh, but when we think about, uh, you know, um, whether it is uh, um, uh, the first woman ever to get the math field prize, uh, Mariam uh, Mirzahani, or, um, or the first woman to lead uh, uh, the next space um, uh, trip, to um, to to space, and she's um, an Iranian-born uh, Iranian uh, origin woman. Um, I think um, born in the U.S., but um, first commander of NASA to be a woman. Um, again, it just reminds you of the talent pool that has that is sitting in Iran and outside of Iran, ready to serve Iran and the rest of the world. And, um, and we've talked about a lot of examples, but let's just think about the things that could turn around really fast. And by the way, I have also in all these years encouraged World Bank and IMF to, um, to have a collaboration and a dialogue with Iran, because a dialogue, it, regardless of the regime, is the job of this institution. I think Iran is one of the largest shareholders of the IMF. And the fact that Iran is not using those resources for leapfrogging in finance, in fintech, in financial inclusion, in um, uh, all the things that you all have talked about, to me is shocking, both on the side of Iran, but also in the side of the other shareholders who, in order to change Iran, you have to bring it into the international world and you have to, you know, whether financial resources are, are provided or not, to have that dialogue so that there is a conversation going on all the time. Um, so look at, uh, again, a number of the examples we talked about. Um, I think as um, Hamid was speaking, I am really scared about this new, um, new dimension of Iran, Saudi, China, Russia uh, getting together, but particularly taking on loans from China. Again, not to dump on China. I've worked on China for 30 years and, you know, it's great power, great economy. Um, but we have been all reading the same articles. And last week there was a the World Bank and IMF uh, spring meetings. And what is scary is the loans that China provided to a lot of emerging markets have blown up. They have a very high ratio of disasters and a very high ratio of projects not going well. 
And what has happened is the rule, there is no rule of law. So what they have put in contracts is something that has never existed in any kind of aid contract. You uh, have your port built or your, um, your infrastructure built by China, your airport or uh, whatever. If you cannot pay back your loan, i.e. your government cannot pay back the loan, China takes over your port, owns it. That is very unusual. That's happening as we speak in many African countries. So the fact that the Iranian leadership don't even read the newspaper and take a loan from somebody who can take over your infrastructure is really scary. The fact that our ocean, you know, our Gulf, uh, Iran, a Persian Gulf is depleted of fish because of the way the contracts were given out. Um, the Caspian Sea is depleted in other ways really makes it important because there are still resources that Iran could use today to at least get the best terms of trade, to get better terms uh, if you're negotiating with Russia and China and, um, and other neighbors, but preferably to take loans from people who have your interests at, at heart rather than people who are going to take over your assets if you cannot pay your loans, I think is going to be really, really important. And Hamid, you may be very nervous. Um, the other thing is, let's just look in the neighborhood in Iran. UAE is going to be chairing the next meeting of COP28. You know, you look at Iran in terms of knowledge and, uh, and history. Um, if we were looking at this 30 years ago, 20 years ago, etc., you would not think that UAE, you would, you know, if you had to decide, is it UAE who's going to run the COP28 or Iran, you would have thought it's Iran. So we have fallen so far back in the world economy, the ease of doing business, the um, rule of law, um, the, you know, I, do, I won't even go into digital infrastructure. You've all done such a better job on that. But this is the time that if we can bring in also financial digital tools, we can do two things. One, affect corruption, because with digital um, financial infrastructure, you cannot necessarily have the freedom to have corruption to, at the scale and level and size that goes on in Iran, uh, like some other countries. But secondly, you can help build out the infrastructure of Iran using its own resources and some other resources in a modern way using fintech, using you know, new banking, new financial tools, new financial infrastructure uh, that even today with limitations it can do. So, um, so I think you know, one of the things that is important is we know the limitations of this regime. We know that state regimes do not handle the economy really well. Uh, we need know that the role of the private sector and technology is really important. And the entrepreneur class in Iran is among the largest. Um, so how do we take advantage of those assets? Even while this regime is still ruling Iran, let's find ways to provide knowledge to it so that it does not leave Iran with the kind of debt and liabilities that will not allow Iran to go to its next step of development and leave it in a way that for the next hundred years, it becomes the worst country to do business in at least move up to from 127th country to maybe the level of Mongolia at 80. <laughs> Let's do better than that. <laughs> None about me for Hadid Barsang, but, but please, uh, Mr. Tejarati. Yes, um, well, full disclosure, I'm dialing in from Shanghai, China. 
Um, and uh, and I'm, uh, I'm glad that the, Watch your the whole, words. <laughs> and we're using Zoom. I'm glad the whole issue that. of uh, of uh, China came up. Uh, having uh, lived and worked here for nearly 30 years, um, I think, uh, and and having been fairly close, especially last three weeks when I when I uh, am on the flight back home on on Sunday. Uh, I will write my observations of the past three weeks. It's like I've, I've lived three different lives in the past three weeks of the, all the people we met and the changes I've seen. Uh, but a lot of people that are also very deeply um, uh, aware and very close to the deals that have been done with, uh, with Iran, it really confirms that um, it, it's, it's uh, unparalleled since the Turkmenchai Treaty uh, and the Golestan Treaty on, on uh, the kinds of concessions uh, that the the Chinese have gotten, and and I wouldn't blame the Chinese on that. It's it's always the other side that really needs to be able to be protective of that. I, I think they're they're going to be disastrous for Iran, uh, and it's not going to uh, lend itself to a lot of development uh, of the of the country. Um, and uh, there are many many examples of it, as you've already pointed out in. Uh, South Pacific to Africa to other uh, countries, and Iran should not be in a position uh, of small South Pacific nations that have to succumb to such terrible deals. It's it's probably the strongest country that has struck the weakest deals uh, with China, and I, I and I watch these deals very closely. But because China has come up, I, I actually want to draw some parallels because. There has been good development in China, but there also we've seen with the state control in the last uh, uh, 10 years, particularly what um, some of the bad effects of it. But the, the first, say, 20, 25 years of that development, there's been a, a lot of things. Hamid mentioned demographics. It was exactly the case 30 years ago with China. Uh, and had they not actually gotten on that bandwagon, there is no way on earth that today China would be able to um, address and become both the factory of the world, uh, build the, uh, the supply chain in the world, um, build all these entrepreneurs, uh, and already China is aging uh, rapidly, and its population will start uh, shrinking. And had they not had this period, China would have been one of the poorest nations on earth. Uh, so I think for Iran, this is uh, exceedingly important. Um, the other uh, couple of parallels that I would draw, um, I am also definitely of the camp that it is the people of Iran that are going to ultimately um, lift the nation, um, make their choices on what kind of society we want, we want to have there, et cetera, et cetera. But the role of both overseas returnees, which in the case of China was also very significant compared to, uh, um, to Iran, um, is, uh, cannot be underestimated. Um, I, I saw it with, uh, with uh, my own eyes. I've been a, a first-hand witness of it, where in every single industry, those overseas returnees, when they found confidence that if they came back, they wouldn't be stuck, there were an opportunity to grow, their capital was safer, et cetera, et cetera. And that was um, around mid-1990s. Uh, even early 1990s, if you sent somebody from China to America, there was at least, uh, you know, two out of three chance that they would just, just disappear and not return. But uh, post mid 1990s, actually, 
people started coming back and they wouldn't want to stay in America because a real opportunity was there. And every single industry, whether it was venture capital, whether it was in the industrial development, in, in real estate development, et cetera, the, the role of the diaspora was huge. And it takes about 10 to 15 years, in my experience with China, that then a, a local population begins to actually flourish. Uh, and they, they start from garage imitation to then brand imitation and then uh, uh, minor in, innovation. And then they get into real innovation, real um, uh, entrepreneurship, which are the stages that China has, has developed. That takes 10, 15 years. And again, we're up against that demographic if we don't start that now. The other one is the role of multinationals. Although now Chinese economy is largely dominated by local competition. Uh, it was uh, It's the week of Shanghai Auto Show now. You should just see how um, Western auto companies are absolutely frightened uh, uh, of what's going on with Chinese uh, innovation in that area. But it took a good 30 years of multinational companies investing in China, uh, as well as reaping those benefits for Western economies, uh, th that they lifted quite a bit of the capabilities in technology, in supply chain, in manufacturing, in services, um, you name it. And I think that has to also be um, uh, front and center. So I, I think it's a, it's a model of development to say, we, we have to welcome what's already there and not have to reinvent the wheel and, and leapfrog. At the same time, also protect uh, the, the economy, especially the small and medium-sized businesses so we don't end up with a Russian type economy, which would be a, a complete uh, disaster. These are the couple of uh, points that uh, that I thought to mention um, on the back of the comments that were made. Yeah, if I just make a comment here, like um, in the late 90s, um, when the world was going to broadband connectivity for Internet, uh, we were active in Japan and um, the Japanese had a really hard time deploying the U.S. version or the European version of the standards that were coming up for uh, for the DSL technology, which was broadband. And so we were meeting with the folks in the telecom there at the time, and we realized that the history of what happened in Japan after World War II was they were so poor that in order to lay telephone cables, they went and found the cheapest telephone cables they could find, which was the pairs of wires in your phone were insulated by paper pulp because they could get it a little bit cheaper, right? I mean, this is World War II, right? It's almost, it's not, what is it, 90 years or something, 90 years ago? And that's where that country started after World War II. And look where it got to in the 80s, where, you know, Americans couldn't stop talking about Japan and Japan products, Japan quality. They took a $25,000 check and wrote it to AT&T Bell Labs to license their transistor. And then they turned it into transistor radios, where at that time, if you guys remember in the 60s and 70s, everybody had one in their pocket and walking around and made humongous. Sony was basically built on this transistor radio. So the, the point is that Iran is far, far better situation today than any of these other countries that moved up to be contenders in the world. 
we have a bad spot starting spot, but it's not as bad as it could be. Now, it could get worse. Give them a few more years, they make it worse for you. The point is there's humongous hope for what we can build on the positive side of things in Iran. And all the ingredients are there. And for Iranians to look at their diaspora community, whether it's here and it's Europe, they came out of Iran. They didn't speak the language mostly when they walked out. And yet they were able to build companies and businesses and, and become one of the most successful communities in America, at least. Right? So if we can do it here, we can do it in Iran. If, if there's a democracy that's established and, you know, democracies, lack of democracy leads to corruption and corruption leads to economic disaster, which is what we have in Iran right now. And the flip side of that is once the people decide they want to establish a, a good functioning democracy, take away the corruption and economic opportunity comes there because in Iran we have the talent, we have the culture and we have the ability of hard work and the culture of hard work. And so really those are the ingredients of making successful businesses and bring back the economy and, and, and bring back success to the people. So I just, you know, on that note, there's a lot of positives out there for us. There's a lot to be done, obviously, um, but the, the historical examples are there and the facts are um, in our favor. <laughs> Uh, as far as the statistics go, there's another statistics I just recently uh, read about, which in 2016, they hired, uh, Iranian government hired people to do a, um, an audit of, of the pension funds and the banks. 25 out of the 25 pension funds that they tested were already in bankruptcy, right? 25 out of 25. So when you see on media, oh, this guy that hasn't gotten his retirement paycheck for six months, there's a good reason. It's bankrupt, yeah. right? And, you know, and of course, every bank has got funny, funny money balance sheets that eventually needs, <laughs> it's going to come home to roost. But, but there is hope. There is the ability of the community and the education and the people and the woman in Iran get added back into this, uh, you know, uh, into this economy. And I think good things can happen. So uh, why don't we do this? Uh, why don't we ask each of you to say a few words of, uh, uh, initially we asked what was uh, the most important thing? What if the t topics we indicated was not covered and you would like to have a discussion of it or a reference to it uh, briefly so that we can then spend the last 15, 20 minutes to some of the questions that have uh, come up and have been voted upon. Is that okay? Sure. Go ahead. Cool. I, just, I, just uh, I guess to me, uh, what is uh, top of mind for me, uh, not only for after the transition, but even uh, in order to uh, have a speedy uh, regime change in Iran, is to control the flow of disinformation. And the uh, success of the Islamic Republic uh, in uh, dividing uh, uh, the opposition. I, uh, just a few days ago, I was uh, somebody sent me a video of a discussion between a group of, for instance, monarchists and leftists in, in Kurdistan. Both of them, they were saying that we believe in Tamamiyata uh, Arzi, or the uh, United Iran, but trust was not there. 
They say, yeah, this guy is saying that, but we don't believe it because they did this 40 years ago. And the regime is using social media and they're putting hundreds of millions of dollars. And of course, all of us know that uh, this information uh, is uh, one of the byproducts of years of training of KGB that uh, uh, are training these people. Uh, they are fueling uh, uh, this disinformation and creating division, which will slow down uh, the, uh, the regime change. And to me, that's top of mind, and we have to all be aware of it and not fall into the trap, not uh, uh, you know, focus uh, on the fact that in order for us to do the changes that uh, we are saying, first, this regime needs to fall, right? That, and, and that will not happen if we can't control, take back control of the social media challenge uh, channels. And that it's not only about technology. It's about culture. It's about that trust, element of trust that you don't assume other people's intentions. If someone is willing to sign a basis of unity and say, I believe in a united Iran, we should believe them, you know, and not question that. If someone says that I'm not uh, uh, going to establish a dictatorship, like my, I don't want a dictatorship, I want a secular government, that should be trusted, right? And that trust comes from transparency. The transparency we can bring uh, with technology. We have now all sorts of tools uh, to do that. But the culture change and the trust in each other is something that uh, no technology will bring. And it requires uh, for us to change that mindset, be united, and get rid of the cancer first before we can start building a healthy, uh, uh, healthy country. Yeah. I think uh, to, to, to add to the point that you mentioned, believe in them, just going to expand on it, that uh, yes, when somebody says, I'm going to sign the, uh, the, 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 the unity, the base of unity, uh, you hold them accountable to it. And you contribute to enhance that uh, base of unity. If you have other views, if you have uh, things that you see is missing in there, you add to it. You participate in making it stronger. And then as you build the system, you, you bring uh, transparency, accountability, checks and balances and consequences to that uh, uh, base of unity, in, into everything, uh, as far as uh, uh, I see it. And, and just quickly touch on that uh, cultural change. Uh, we also have the culture of always blaming it, uh, blaming it uh, to others. Americans didn't want to us to succeed. British didn't want us to succeed. That guy, that guy uh, created revolution. It wasn't us. It was another guy. And that's something that we need to basically cleanse ourselves off of, off of it. it I, I, I love this quote that says, no drop of rain blame itself for the flood. The reality is that we all individually or have accountability toward the impact that we have on the society. So that's that's something again to the cultural point of view. We have we have to kind of get rid of it uh, and accept, acknowledge that the mistakes we made, 
accept the accountability and stop blaming it on others. At the end of the day, I look at a country operation as a larger scale business operation. You have a business, you have competitors, and you have that you can turn into competition if you are clever about it. So the relationship between two countries would be the same, uh, in my opinion, in a larger scale. And, and that's why uh, you know, be bringing transparency to the operating entity uh, and holding people accountable for the action that they, they take is very important. But I also want to touch on um, what Hamid said around IP because that's also very important in the future of Iran and, and how do you protect intellectual uh, uh, properties and in fact uh, enable other players in the country to take advantage of it uh, without, for example, paying, uh, play, uh, paying royalty fees, but at the same time, if external wants to use it, they have to pay for it. I always give the example of Siavash, Siavash the, the inventor of Alamuti code, he didn't get any for his contribution. And I think with the digital era, those notions need as part of the change. That, okay, if you are participating in creating a technology, regardless of where you work, at the end of the day, that royalty fee or a fraction of that royalty fee need to go back to the individual regardless as well. And these are part of creating an open economy that everybody everybody uh, benefit from it based on their contribution, whether the contribution is IP or the, whether the contribution is, in fact, utilizing uh, uh, the technology or being a customer uh, of that technology. So I think that layer of IP and how do we manage IP and how do we monetize IP and how do we generate income from IP for the contributors and the contribution can be also, okay, one person invented the other person is take it and enhance it and create another technology from it and bring it back uh, to the society. One model of it to me, a partial model of it to me, is like the way that Israeli government right now funding innovation. And when they, when they fund innovation, they, they basically hold entrepreneurs accountable to keep the innovation or to keep the, to the company or to keep the operating entity in Israel while they can sell to others. But the government of Israel is also taking benefit from the growth of that business without creating a limiting factor for the country to be able, for the company to be able to basically sell their solutions. Another example of it is Canada and how they're incentivizing the government of Canada, how they're incentivizing innovation and creation, creation of the IP by funding startup companies, but not limiting, uh, creating limitation for companies' growth. So I think these are the part of things that uh, we can also look at and apply to future of Iran. Great. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. Whenever you talk, I take a lot of copious notes because actually it triggers uh, thoughts that I wanted to share. Uh, look, we got to learn to give credit where credit is due. We can all talk about how terrible the Chinese are. I happen to disagree. I think this government or its previous governments have lifted 600 million people out of abject poverty in a period of uh, 30 years. Yes, they haven't done it in a pretty way. Or, or do they have problems? Of course they have problems. Everybody does. But let's, just like we shouldn't 
uh, blame everybody else for our problems. We should also give credit to where credit is due, number one. Number two, it bothers me that our Persian Gulf is going to the word Gulf without a label and on its way to the Arabian Gulf. And, and the stature of Iran in the world community has become what it's become today. It bothers me. And I know I share this with all my co-panelists that we're here to do whatever we can to change, change that. Um, I am in awe of the people of Iran, their courage, the courage of the women in Iran uh, to put so much sacrifice into changing what we're seeing there today. Uh, this is unprecedented, and uh, we're here to support you, and, and we are with you all the way. So um, where, where does this leave me? I'm, as I started, uh, I'm very optimistic. I don't think it's going to be easy. I think it's going to be a lot of hard work, but it's imminently doable, and I think we're all working together hand-in-hand uh, hand, uh, can make it happen. So let's just get the governance right, and the rest will take care of itself. Thank you. Completely agree with you in terms of China's uh, development, I think is unprecedented. No, no country in history has ever grown the, the way uh, China has grown over the last 20 years. And as you said, poverty in the world is less because of what China has done to its own population, despite all the other issues. But nonetheless, in its relations with other countries, it's China first. So I think if you're negotiating with it, you should just remember that and remember to protect your own rights and not that. I think that's what I wanted to highlight. The second thing is they were so smart when I worked at the- There is some uh, problem of uh, uh, your sound. They're trying to see whether there is any way we can fix it on this side. And Mr. Tejarati, maybe uh, you can... Uh... Can you all hear me? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay, I think maybe the, the problem was uh, on the other side. Yeah, I, I also uh, definitely want to acknowledge uh, what both uh, Hamid and Afsana said about China. I wouldn't be here if, uh, if I thought otherwise. It's, uh, it's the greatest transformation in modern history of uh, human condition. Uh, and uh, uh, they got a lot of things right and they got a lot of things wrong because there's no such thing as a manual for transforming a billion people and bringing them out of uh, poverty and uh, especially when the model was not actually a Western development model. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of credit that goes there and Iran is going to have to uh, find its own model uh, to do the same. Uh, I think one of the things that... Um, when you're outside um, of uh, North America, you hear a lot and being an Iranian and, uh, and uh, being in China uh, and other places have been traveling a lot around the world that you hear is how almost nobody wants this thing, this revolution to succeed. Um, and whether it's the Russians, whether it's the Chinese, whether it's the, the, uh, the, the Gulf, you know, will be against uh, um, you know, Iran's economy, et cetera, et cetera, is going to rob the rest of the people. So uh, there's a lot of consensus that nobody wants this thing to succeed. But I actually stand uh, with uh, many of you panelists there that I think uh, that in this particular juncture, 
um, we are standing, we will probably be witnessing uh, one of the most unique phenomena in the world. And that is that a truly homegrown, women-led, um, popular revolution that um, really uh, has been building up for maybe over 200 years of uh, Iran going through various different uh, stages of um, uh, the pangs of anguish of modernity. Uh, and, uh, you know, the last 40 years of it is being, is just one very, very, very vivid example in our own lifetimes that it is, uh, in my view, going to happen because the people of Iran want it, because we have a very different situation than 100 years ago when we were going through the constitutional uh, uh, reform in Iran, uh, where we have a much greater participation of the community that is really well-educated and the greatest participation of women almost anywhere in the world. Uh, so I, I remain very, very uh, positive. I don't listen to all the noise that, well, uh, the, you know, or whatever, or uh, this, these people don't want it. China doesn't want it. That doesn't want it. I think uh, I think the people of Iran have spoken, and it's only a matter of time. And I think whatever we can do to accelerate so that we actually take uh, advantage of this window um, and not end up uh, diminishing the return that they can get with the incredible talent um, is is really really worthy. I think I think you you need to look at the country. I'm, I, I'm aware of the business deals that uh, that China is closing with Africa and the hefty price on it. But you first have to question why a country so rich in mineral resources live on their poverty line with no infrastructure, and it's the fault of the government that agree to those type of uh, mm. contracts. You know. So I think it's the same thing. It, you have to be clever about it. You have to sign the right agreement. But obviously, in case of Iran, is also I mean, it's it's somewhat different because it. We already know that the Iranian government is a dictator government, and it doesn't listen to it. They don't listen to their people to begin with. So that's that's that makes a slight difference, and that's why our role in facilitating and enabling. Uh, the people in Iran to continue with their uh, revolution and help them to get rid of this government and then be clever about every business deal that the country signs with any other country. I, I, I think I have to add a small point. The Iranian model uh, under the Shah was the Chinese model. Mm -hmm. We give you economic uh, development mm -hmm. minus democracy. Mm -hmm. And they delivered. The regime's model is claiming to follow China, but it's the exact opposite. They took a thriving economy, the statistics that Hamid, and uh, drove it into the ground and are uh, uh, negotiating with some of the best negotiators in the world in China from the most abject point. So it is the shame of this government if they allow China to abuse them. Uh, and it is their responsibility. Khanum, I hope uh, we have you back. That was, uh, absolutely. I apologize. That was uh, has never happened. That, I don't know if you could hear that very bizarre noise that uh, interrupted me. I don't know if you could hear it or I could yes. hear it. But anyways, what I was about to say is the only one topic that we have not discussed that I would put on the agenda, which is uh, we've touched on, of course, through the whole conversation is education, because 
obviously Iran's culture and history, uh, and Dr. Milani has written about this for um, a while, is really the strength of the culture in, and it's the importance of education in Iranian culture. And despite any regime and uh, you know previous regime, current regime and future regimes, you see that Iranian people want to have the best education. And Dr. Milani, you have introduced me when I have been to Stanford to Iranian students who went to high school in Iran, came to Stanford and their math Olympiads and their physics Olympiads. So just the fact that we have this incredible resource um, and imagine what they could do back in Iran in terms of their contributions. That, and that is people who are 18, 19, 20. Uh, and, um, and I just think that is a wealth that very few countries have that you cannot replace. So regardless of you know other things, whether it is oil, whether it is other resources, um, you can live or, you know, those are things that come and go, but your people are the things that are your most, the biggest source of wealth. And I think Iran is very, very fortunate in terms of the people who are living in Iran and the people who have left Iran um, in terms of that incredible source. And if we could do anything to keep up the level of the education, to make sure that while people are in Iran, they have access to the absolute best education resources through the technology that you've all talked about, I think that will be very, very important, regardless of what happens. Yeah. I think education has always had the highest priority and respect yes. in Iranian culture, and that has always stayed with Iranian to ensure that they go through schooling, they go through degree, and the desire to be educated has always been the basis of uh, Iranian people. And I think with digital technology and the era of AI and what we're talking about outside Iran around uh, innovation and, and all that, obviously the, the, what we educate people and how we educate people is also part of the discussion of innovation. One of the trends that I think is important and in the outline, we indicated that we should at some time discuss this, is that I think there is a, a small but important change in Iranian attitude towards education, there is much more interest in vocational training. Yeah. The idea of getting a college degree and having a college degree is becoming much less the status symbol that it was. People are beginning to understand the entrepreneurial skill that you're talking about, that you, if you want to know something, it's much more important to have vocational. There is a decline in applications to the top colleges and there is a rise in applications to vocational schools in Iran. By the way, the same thing's going on here. That's Probably we shouldn't talk about this at Sanford, but uh, same thing's <laughs> going on here. Uh, and uh, if you were here, uh, I would have introduced you to one of those students that you referred to, someone who came from high school in Iran, was in Olympiad, uh, finished Stanford computer, uh, in, I think, three years, started the company and has already exited it and uh, drove me around in his Ferrari and showed me how it was done. So, uh, so let's... Uh, some of uh, the students are women, by the way. I, I think some of your students have been women, so... I think uh, more than half of them have been, at least, more than half, and many of the Olympiads that you're talking about. But, you know, Stanford believes in uh, diversity, so... Uh, so I, I think we have about 10 minutes left, we, and we're going to address at least one or two of the questions. And 
the system that we have here allows you to vote for questions, and uh, I'm going to go with the question that has, uh, uh, not surprisingly maybe, uh, achieved the most votes. And that's the question of uh, how do you uh, nourish startups in Iran? What is the process of uh, nourishing and encouraging startups in Iran? And you have all talked about the need to do this. Uh, is it possible to do it at this time? Uh, how would it be done? So, so um, if, I can, if I can say this, um, I think there are two things, simply, very simply. You need an environment of mentorship so that they can look at other people who've done it and get the courage that they can do it, to get the confidence that they can do it. And I think um, in Iran, capital, availability of capital and family relationships have been combined together. We need to disaggregate those so that there's a professional way you can allocate capital to the best ideas and cap flow of capital no longer depends on the family that you were born in. We do, do those two things, it will work. Yeah, I think um, in a society like Iran, um, in my opinion, the first thing that needs to happen, you know, you need for entrepreneurial, for people to take the entrepreneurial risk, they need, look at, they need to look at that as a good way to reach a great result, financial result, first and foremost. When you live in a society where, um, you know, bribery and who you know is dominant um, and people are not in the jobs they need to be in and yet, you know, they, they've reached to the point of being a minister or this or that, to be honest with you, that could be discouraging to building a, a, a social fabric where people are willing to take risk uh, with their reputation and time and effort. So preparing that groundwork where it's a merit-based system, as I said before, is really important. But at the same time, I think, um, you know, when you really, I mean, just look at the Iranians that come here. Uh, the, the person you, the student you talked about driving around in Ferrari <laughs> only a few years after they've come here. Iranians are entrepreneurial. I, I happen to think that, you know, the, the reason why Iranians are so successful when they move to a free country is because Iranians by nature are ambitious. They're ambitious, they're educated, and they're willing to put the hard work in. We didn't learn that here, we learned that there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm assuming and, and, and I'm believing that that fundamental individual drive to become a successful entrepreneur exists. It's the environment that's missing. So, uh, and, and so yeah, you just do an A-B comparison, right? Iranians in Iran have a PhD, drive around a cab. Iranians here, they come over, they get a bachelor's degree, they go build a company worth 10 billion. What changed? Is the environment that they're in and, and, and the freedom they get to move. If I may add um, uh, something very uh, related to this, um, I, I totally agree with um, uh, with uh, the points that were made by um, by Hamid and Faraj, um, but you had another question in there that is it possible to do that now, uh, or do conditions have to uh, dramatically change? I actually don't think it is possible to do that now. Um, it, to to get real entrepreneurship going for all the reasons that were that were there. But you look at 
the history of the past 20 years where a lot of VCs started and died, started and died, started and died, and good startups came up and what what happened to them. I don't want to repeat the, the names and, and the situations. I think that the, that environment of entrepreneurship, unfortunately, needs uh, that different environment for it to thrive. And those conditions are not there now. There are other things we can do to support, such as connectivity, such as uh, other ways in which we can support uh, the, uh, the economy and the people. But I don't believe that that environment of entrepreneurship today is possible on, on a sustained basis. So uh, I guess uh, what I um, oh, go ahead. I, go ahead. No, no, no. Please go. Please go ahead. So uh, in my mind, as uh, both uh, everyone said, access to capital is of course key, but government R and D spend, uh, especially for long-term foundational uh, solutions and technologies that may take a decade or more. This is not something that you can expect uh, private capital to take the uh, entire burden. Uh, so uh, policies uh, of, the, of the new government uh, is absolutely essential. And again, trust uh, uh, for the entrepreneur that if they're going to uh, spend years to build companies, that they have the same playing field uh, as others, or merit-based uh, 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 system that uh, Farajan mentioned. That's absolutely key, and I completely uh, agree uh, that in the current environment, uh, it's completely impossible and requires a regime change uh, for, for startups to flourish in Iran. You know, entrepreneurs are risk takers, they're not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I was going to add is, um, you know, maybe you also make sure that young people in Iran knows about like Y Combinator because Y Combinator, let's say, have a, has entrepreneur school. Um, they can go on the internet, see how to do things. Obviously, it's set up not just for U.S. entrepreneurs. You know, you can uh, many Nigerians, Kenyans are are getting funding from YC to start their companies. And Nigeria is not exactly the easiest country or the least corrupt country to do business. And I'm not comparing it with Iran. But the point is, um, the least we could do is make sure that young people there have access to the same. Uh, it, that's like uh, going to vocational school is going to entrepreneur school. Some of it is not relevant to them, but some of it, like um, Hamid said, you know, mentoring or finding um, certain structures that work even in today's Iran would be helpful for them. And even if it's not helpful for them, the second, it might be helpful in their lifetime. Yeah. Can I add a couple of things? Yes. Of so I, I, th I think going back to everybody's point from the we are by nature entrepreneur because we always resisted something uh, back in Iran as well. So I think that's where it's coming from. But I think you can design entrepreneurial programs that actually starts with university with a goal that you graduate with leaving the university start with your company formed at the seed stage. And that entire curriculum is about 
design your business plan, marketing plan, match with the corporate in terms of the problem you're solving, match with the academic research of what the country needs, form your team, build your solution, have R&D funding from government, have private uh, funding, and now when you graduate, you have a company that already at the seed stage that can now launch and grow and go from there. Yeah, and, and one more thing uh, is uh, very imp important is the access to global talent. So as much as talented as the country may be, we may be missing in some areas we really don't know. So having an open uh, 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 place that we can bring in uh, people from abroad and absorb them into uh, localized companies is also important. Well, uh, it's been a long session. I think we need to... Uh we said at 12 o'clock, we ended at 12. Uh, I want to uh, 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 end on a note of optimism, as Amit also said. Uh, I've been in diaspora now for about 35 years. Uh, a meeting like this, with this level of uh, successful Iranian entrepreneurs, willing to give of the most important thing they have, which is their time, uh, I'm, I'm sure many people think that uh, uh, their capital might be more important, but uh, their capital is valuable because they value their time. And the amount of time, the amount of hours uh, these people have spent in the last few weeks to think about and plan this and spend the time here with us. Uh, and some of the energies that are started, some of the energies, for example, that have been started by uh, Faraj and a group of uh, uh, and Faraj is uh, uh, extremely successful Hanum uh, Sampur the Kai the Iranian entrepreneurs that are trying to solve some of the most basic problems of censorship and sovereignty of ideas and give sovereignty to the uh, social space to back to Iranians these are what makes me think exactly as Hamid said, this is a rare historical moment that change can be brought. And one of the key uh, elements of success is to ignore the noise, ignore the bots, ignore the uh, advocates of uh, uh, conspiracy theories, and believe that a better tomorrow is possible for Iran. And people who are around this table, not me, these people, have shown how it can be done. And uh, that, to me, is a, uh, one of the most optimistic uh, signs that the uh, uh, day of reckoning for this cursed regime is not far away. Thank you very much.